Find your feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast. My name is obviously Hanny and I'm here today to welcome you into the into the conversation with Daryl Griffiths. Daryl is the founder and very much still heavily involved in his company called Shot Sports Nutrition, an Australian sports nutrition company based in Melbourne and hopefully soon to be based here in Tasmania as Daryl is currently building a house down here. Daryl has worked though with hundreds of athletes around the world. They do no marketing for Shot Sports Nutrition, but rather lets the product and the results of athletes speak for themselves. It is very much a homegrown business that has evolved so enormously over the last 20 years. Today's conversation was to go deeper than we did in our first episode with him back not long after we launched. There was so much left unspoken about that I felt it was really critical to get Daryl back on the podcast and to go into this depth with you. Today, I really quite grilled Daryl on the fine balance between electrolytes in our fluid replacements and the importance of them. I wanted to go into a little bit more detail on the very scary Pandora's box of the ketogenic diet. I also wanted to discuss with him his thoughts around the use of supplements, uh, painkillers, caffeine, how to address the significant challenges of people who are participating in multi-day events and a whole plethora more questions I had for him. This podcast is filled with a very, very large amount of information, and I know that you are going to absolutely thrive on the conversation. I just also want to take another moment out of my introduction to thank the team in at Find Your Feet who have been holding the fort and being there to answer all of your questions and pack all of your orders for those of you who are supporting us online. If you have the opportunity to drop in and see us here in Hobart, we'd love to meet you. Otherwise, jump onto our website, www.findyourfeet.com.au. Alrighty, let's get into this podcast with Daryl, and I hope you love the conversation. Daryl, down in Tasmania. Yes. This is going to be home for you, hopefully, in the next little while. Yeah building uh, in West Hobart, which is exciting and looking forward to getting amongst the trails, running and mountain biking. Well, I love the sound of that and I really enjoyed standing up at your block last night looking out at the mountain. Uh, The house you're building is just going to be absolutely beautiful and I take it big enough maybe to house a few athletes, (laughs) bring them down here for some training. Yeah, this plan is already quite a few that have um, put their hand up to come down and do two-week blocks of training. So awesome. yeah, it should be good. Really exciting. It would be great for Tassie to have that sort of new development in the elite atmosphere down here, seeing athletes out on the mountain training. Yeah, well, that's, um, particularly mountain biking or any, or any type of cycling is, uh, is a big form of um, training for the motocross um, superbike riders, all those sorts of things. They, their cross training is really important for their, uh, for their sport. So down here would be a really good opportunity for them to to use the trails and get some good training blocks in. You've been working quite a lot with those athletes at the moment, haven't you? 
Yeah, yeah, they um, the nutrition was kind of a bit hit and miss for that sport, and what they're realizing now is that they are actually athletes, um, and even though they've got a motor under them, the uh, their their physiology is is pretty amazing to be able to to do what they do, particularly the level of um, athlete that I'm working with. You've also just got back from Kona or a little bit earlier last year, but you got back from Kona and I I just wondered, I'd really like to know what it's like for you to go and stand on the sidelines and to watch these exceptionally fit um, and in some cases talented athletes performing on such a big world stage. Yeah, what do you, what's your role there for a start, but then also what do you observe as you're standing on the sidelines watching them execute their races? Yeah, that's um, it's a interesting place in that it's it's hot and humid, but it can be extraordinarily windy. Mm. Um, you can be in the actual town of Kona, but then forty kilometres down um, the Queen K, it could be blowing sixty kilometres an hour. So there's lots of different conditions that um, you've got to um, tolerate there. But my role there, because I had think something like 47 athletes that I was working with um, in different capacities for that event and it's it's really my role there is just to sort of calm them down a bit they start the races on a Saturday and by Thursday they start freaking out a bit about whether they've got things right and you know they just need to clarify that they've got everything in place um, so it's more just a, a calming voice to um, to let them know that, you know, they've done the work, they have an understanding of what their likely losses are going to be out on the Queen K and uh, just to um, compete at an intensity that they've trained for and not get too caught up with the World Championships. And and unfortunately what happens for a lot is that they they ride the, the bike course at an intensity way beyond what they've trained for mm-hmm. and they don't and they don't um, run at the... the um, at the pace that they're capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, um, you know, with endurance events, it's about measuring effort. And that's where a lot of athletes sort of get it wrong. They run based on how they're feeling at the time or cycle how they're feeling at the time rather than thinking how they're going to feel four or five or six hours down the track. And that's where you just need to hold back a bit to save for that final, uh, final leg of the, of the event. And can you, when you're standing on the sideline, say watching the cycle leg play out, both beginning and end of it, and then you see them embark on the run leg, so they're they're off to run a marathon in these hot, hot and potentially windy conditions. Can you tell the athletes that are going to fall into the hole sort of well before they know they're going to do that? Is there, yeah? What do you observe in them? Yeah, it's normally looking at the cheeks if they're rosy. Oh, okay. Yeah, it tends to be a good uh, indicator of whether they're overheated or not. Um, and it's also, like, the thing is someone can look fantastic at, uh, you know, 10Ks or 15Ks into the marathon, but at 20Ks they fall apart. You know, it can happen so quickly. And that's the thing with um, with sports nutrition especially is that at what point do those deficiencies impact on your performance Mm. and for some it creeps up slowly and for others it just bang it happens really quickly yeah so uh you could be feeling fantastic at you know 
20k and at 21 it's all fall apart mm-hmm. so um it's it, it is sometimes hard to pick so can you take me back to the rosy cheek thing yep. just because i stood on the sideline of ultra trail australia a couple of years ago when i wasn't competing and we were watching 100k athletes and they were about 60 70 kilometers into the event at that time and i was talking about it with graham later but what i began to really observe was like the lights on in their eyes mm-hmm. so an athlete could come in and they'd be um quiet staring off into space dull like no sheen in their eyes and you could just see like the lights went on in their central nervous system and you could be like that person hasn't fueled themselves you know enough and then you could get someone coming in and they're like dancing and prancing but they were almost um like you yeah you could just see this like aliveness in their in their face and you knew that they were like lights on full of fuel still you know potentially very capable of um striving right towards the finish line so what is it for you then about rosy cheeks that kind of puts the um, alarm bells on? Yeah, just that that um, overheated, just probably more that their hydration strategy hasn't been as good as it could have been or whether, you know, just the conditions were, were brutal. Mm. Um, and that's the thing with, you know, talking of Kona is that you can have some really, really hot, windy years and it, it can be quite mild. And you can see that in the time difference. That um, so, what I do every year is, I, I um, uh, have a, a, a running sheet of how many athletes went under ten hours, mm. and how many athletes went under ten hours thirty. And it's a really good indicator of what the weather conditions were that year, because the weather conditions have a huge impact on sweat loss. And obviously, the hotter the conditions, the more sweat you're going to lose, and that impacts massively on your performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's why, it's why races in Asia where it's very hot and humid, even more hot and humid than Kona, the times are always slower. Mm-hmm. They will always be. Just because these deficits are greater. Because the deficiencies are greater. Yeah. Exactly. You just cannot keep up with how much you're losing. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I know you've recently spent like a lot of time in Singapore and Japan and Philippines um, yeah. working with athletes there. Is that just, again, trying to address the fact that these guys have a lot of challenges to help, you know, to train and to perform at a high level in these conditions? Yeah, absolutely. The, the heat, in, well, especially the humidity, because there's so much moisture in the air, it affects um, thermoregulation, so mm-hmm. evaporation of sweat. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the challenge is to try and keep up with your losses. And the fact is you never, you never will. You never replace the amount you lose. You'll always lose more than your stomach can process. Mm-hmm. So, but in those, in those conditions, and especially why I like in, uh, I'm enjoying a lot more working in those conditions, is that um, when you start to address their needs more appropriately based on how much that athlete is losing, you can see the benefits a lot quicker as well in that um, before they weren't getting anywhere near enough fluid as they should have been, but importantly, they weren't getting anywhere near enough sodium. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you start to bridge that gap and they start to get a little closer to their losses, um, still not replacing all that they lose, but at least minimizing percentage of loss, um, they're not experiencing the cramping issues they were before, mm-hmm. but more importantly, they're going faster than they had before um so yeah hydration is it's so important um but once again you know there's athletes that that live in those sorts of areas um 
that do very well in the heat. Mm. Um, and they don't have those challenges that some others do because they have a low sweat rate and they have a low sodium concentration in their sweat. So they can manage their losses far better. Yeah. So, you know, for someone to say, oh, you know, what are you worried about? I, you know, I, you know, there's no worries training in the heat. Well, sorry, competing in the heat. Well, you know, you know you're, you're, you're lucky. It's the cards you dealt. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean that that athlete can drink the same amount as you and expect them to do what you're doing. Mm. So that's the, the, the whole whole message for these athletes is you just need to drink a greater volume because you're losing more. Mm. And once you start to address that, you'll start to be able to tolerate those hotter conditions better. So when you work with your athletes and you do um, testing on them to find out sodium concentration, sweat loss, and also calorie high rates and the numbers in general, has that ever impacted you, even though you're not necessarily a coach saying to them have you ever thought about going shorter and faster or running in colder conditions rather than always choosing your hot condition races yeah that that happens a lot um there's going to be athletes who are suited to a certain temperature Mm. and if you do have a high sweat rate and or a high sodium concentration in your sweat you need to play to your strengths um so Competing in hot, humid conditions all the time is going to be a real challenge. So you need to find cooler races where your losses aren't going to be as great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and once athletes have that understanding, they kind of, the, the light switch goes off for them, meaning, okay, well, you know, I did do well in that race and I didn't feel as bad as I normally do and, you know, it's probably 15 or 20 degrees cooler than what they're normally competing in. So... Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's some athletes who who have big goals of winning some big races, but if it's in the heat and humidity and they have high losses, unfortunately, it's, it's not going to happen for them. Mm. And then I wonder if that would almost change race strategy as well. Like if you are really fit, really prepared and you've done the work mm. and then you're in a 100K race where it's six degrees in the morning and it really stays quite cool until 10, 11 in the morning and then suddenly like the temperature kicks up. Can you make make a little bit more of those early hours of coolness and then know that you're going to have to like just ease the pedal off a little bit through the hotter part of the day and minimise your losses and then once it cools down sort of build back into it? Yeah, absolutely. There's some athletes that, that I have worked with that I've said that you can't compete at the same heart rate zone or the same intensity in this race than you can in cooler races. Mm -hmm. You just have to limit your losses and you need to be accepting that if you ride at the same intensity at 15 degrees and then expect to be able to do that at 30 or 33 or whatever it might be, at some point later on down the the track in that race, um, you're just not going to be able to finish as strong as you would in a cooler race. You're going to have to just you know, limit your losses. So it's sometimes, it, it, but it's hard mm-hmm. being competitive. It's hard to make that decision, but sometimes, you know, you just, you just have to. And is there then a challenge for athletes coming from, say, these hot, humid environments like Singapore, Philippines, Japan, even Queenslanders, down to events in a cooler climate like a Tasmanian environment, do they have a similar challenge or is it easier for them to make that transition? 
Um, interestingly, if, if, you're, if you're an athlete that does very well in the heat, um, it's rare that you do really well in the cold huh, as well. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what we do with those athletes, and, and you know, they're, they're very cognizant of the fact that when it's cold, they just can't get their muscles warm. <laughs> and they feel like they just can't get going. Mm-hmm. And for those athletes, I think they just function at a much higher core temperature. Okay. And in those cooler conditions, they can't get their core temperature high enough for their muscles to function at the level that, they're, mm-hmm. um, w- w- that they would like. Um, but in those hotter conditions, um, you know, they find that you know, it's much easier for them to run. They can find that, that core temperature that w- it works best for them. Um, conversely, um, now those, those athletes who do well in the heat, as mentioned before, they have a low sweat rate and they have a low sodium concentration in their sweat. So with those athletes that have a high sodium concentration or a high, higher sweat rate, um, who, who tend to struggle a bit more in the, uh, in the warmer conditions, will generally go really well in the cold. Yeah, okay. And it's, it, a lot of that you can see from, you know, if you go for a ride or a run and it might be really cold in the morning and someone's got three or four layers on, and then someone else is standing over there with a pair of shorts and a t-shirt on, and you're looking at them and you go, how are you able to tolerate this cold? And they're like, well, actually, I don't feel it. Mm, that, yeah, that's that, me. <laughs> yeah, so that person um, that's running in the, in the shorts and t-shirt while everyone else is rugged up will most likely have a high sweat rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. And it, you can see how this is then going to lend so much into the psychological preparation that an athlete will go through in leading up to a year of racing or a year of preparation because you have to be quite a brave soul to be like I know that that's the biggest event in Australia and everyone is going to that event and I really should be there because that's like our national championships and yet it's not for me Hmm. my race is going to be five months later overseas in Europe where it's hot and you know you can see like that that challenge that athletes are going to need to make at times and having this awareness of like who you are as an athlete and, and where your numbers sit and where you're going to be most suited to can be so powerful in helping you make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, it was, we recently got some free tickets, thankfully <laughs> to go and see the international women's tennis tournament down here in Tassie. And it's part of the preparation for the Australian Open. And there were some very, very good athletes uh, hitting that night. What I really noticed were two things watching the tennis. One was that the women were only drinking water during this match. And no, it was an evening game, so their losses weren't going to be as great. But there was also a bottle of Gatorade sitting there. So an all-in-one formula of a little bit of salt, water, sugar, basically. And one girl, you could see she just maintained her intensity and her ability to dance around the court all night. She was super alert, super agile. The other girl started off and I was like, that chick's going to win. And then as the evening went on, it was like she you could just see her losing her ability to think quickly um, and to move around the court and it didn't seem physical it seemed like really to me like mental and she became more aggressive and frustrated with herself and it kind of you saw this spiral start and once it started she was it was all over 
and the rest, the last half an hour of the game was, um, it was a given by that point. Have you worked with the tennis? Like when I watched on television, I just, yeah, I just keep seeing athletes who aren't fueling appropriately. It frustrates the heck out of me. Okay. A sport of that level. Yeah. And Huge money as well. so far behind because I, I do every sport I go to, I, that's the only thing I look at is what they're doing in regards to fueling, hydration. Um, I've had, um, or I can't mention players that purchase product from us yeah. because, and they're on the world stage, but. I know they purchase product from us, but I know that they don't use it properly. Mm-hmm. And often over the last few years, please, let's get a sweat test done. Next time you're in Melbourne, let's get it done because it's it's information that you need to have, particularly if you're going to be experiencing hot events like they do I in do. Asia. Yeah, or Australian even in Australia. Open is going yeah. to be brutal. Yeah, exactly. Um, the year Warenka won, um, he won a few years ago now, but it was a brutally hot week. And when you look at him, when he compared to other players, he doesn't sweat as much. Yeah. It looks like he's got a really good sweat rate. He's able to handle the heat better than other players. Um, but, yeah, you're spot on. I, I was at the tennis, just had a ground ticket on uh, Tuesday. And just plain water. And then they'd have a sugary sports drink. Then they'd have to chase it with water to sort of, uh, dilute it down and none of it made sense and it was hot you could feel the heat coming off the core yeah. um so yeah I, I it's also the glucose factor as well like these guys are making flash decisions massive you know, just, amount yeah. of en- massive amount of energy required to uh, process so much information yeah. so yeah it, it, and the unfortunate thing well it's not unfortunate but we're not able to measure how much energy the brain is using to be able to read the ball at that speed and where you need to hit it. So you've got to play two or sh- two shots ahead of yourself to know, well, I'm going to place it there so they, and then I'm going to... So there's so many things you need to think mm. about. You know, even, even at rest, the brain utilises 20% of our energy. I can't even imagine... What it's like at that The level. amount of energy the Absolutely. brain is utilising for that sort of sport. And these matches can go for three to five hours, mm. you know, the big epics. And yeah. to be that alert for that long and not be refueling, uh, I I mean, hats off to what they achieve, but be so exciting to see what could happen if yeah. someone really took that uh, sports nutrition uh, to a whole new level. I know. I, I'm, it does frustrate the heck out of me. Yeah, okay. But the thing is, it's not just, you know, if you win – then you've got to play again, then again, then again, then again. So, you know, it could be five or six days or even longer. Yeah. It's um, it's a huge challenge. So can we then flow on from that? I, I really did want to touch on multi-day events. Uh, it's becoming a bigger thing in the endurance scene. You've got your pro cycling teams that you work with. You've got motocross guys who are no doubt performing in consecutive days. We've just talked about the tennis. You've got cricket guys who are doing five-day matches. Um like how what what is it that makes someone succeed strongly over multi-day events what is the focus for a multi-day event athlete when it comes to their sports nutrition it's being consistent it's it's um understanding that um you're not eating just for that one day or you're not 
taking on food and fluid for that one day. And can I clarify by being consistent, you mean actually during their performance or is yeah. it through the whole entire day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? Yeah, it's 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 from it's not just while you're racing. Mm-hmm. It's understanding that I'm gonna burn a certain amount of calories during this event today. I need to try and minimize my losses as much as possible so then I can back up for the following day. And then that day I need to ensure that um, if I feel that I haven't had the opportunity to replace my losses as well as I could have during the event, that I make sure I do it at dinner that night or, um, you know, focus on maybe it was was a lot hotter than I thought it was going to be, so I'm going to really focus on my hydration. Um, So it's not about what you're doing that one day, it's about how well you minimise deficiencies going through over um, successive days. And the better that you can um, manage that first, second, third day will determine how good three, four, and five, and six will be. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're looking at, say, the recovery element, uh, I know actually when I was just floating a couple of questions past you before we started the podcast, you mentioned that the recovery element, the most important thing is getting that hydration back in. So yeah. rehydrating and getting obviously your sodium levels back up again. Rehydration is the single most important thing for recovery. So you know how you've mentioned quite a few times in a previous podcast last night on the um, on Facebook Live as well, you were mentioning that you'll never replace your losses. So if you know roughly what your losses were, but roughly how much you were able to put in, mm. how much of that deficit are we looking at putting back in the tank? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on how long you've got before the next stage. Um, sometimes, you know, events might go for three or four days without stopping. Others, you might just do a full stage one day, then you've got to, you know, sleep overnight, then start the next day. So it's really dependent on on the event, but um, the, the, the limiting factor is your stomach mm-hmm. and what it can tolerate. You can't force any more than it's capable of, of tolerating. So, but in regards to um, recovery, um, you know, everyone immediately thinks about protein powders yeah. and protein and all that sort of stuff. But the fact is that's not, it's not assisting with your hydration and replacing the two most important things, and that is blood volume loss. So when you sweat, you actually have less blood available. And less blood available means that you're just not going to function as well. Mm-hmm. And in that blood is um, a really important mineral called sodium. And I mentioned, uh, and, and you know, I try not to uh, you know, um, harp on it because it's rare, but if the sodium concentration in your blood drops too low, it's life-threatening. That's how important mineral uh, this uh, mineral sodium is. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's the extreme, but how much does that sodium need to to drop for it to impact on your performance? And whether you're there to win the race or whether you're there just to finish, it, it's an, it's an important element that you need to that you need to be um, considerate of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that. Pro cyclists, I'm actually, no, I'm not going to say I know, I'm, but I'm a pretty sure that the pro cyclists will use saline drip bags for they recovery. Used to. They used to, now they're not allowed no, to, are they? That's there's why a, there's I There's a no needle policy. Okay. 
Um, back in the day, if anyone follows AFL, when Brisbane won the three um, premierships in a row, they were doing sarnine trips back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they banned them. But you, know, you can still... You can still manage your losses really well, particularly in a sport like that, um, you know, whether it's pro cycling or football, because you've got people feeding you the whole time. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse to be dehydrated in any of those sports, um, particularly when you've got a car following you that's carrying all the stuff that you need. It's, it then comes down to, firstly, your physiological makeup and, you know, how well your stomach uh, can tolerate uh, you know, a certain volume of fluid and certain concentration of sodium. Okay. So in the multi-day event, I mean, that then suggests that the most important thing to do is to be getting straight onto the electrolytes when you're finishing and trying to get in as much, um, replay, like as much of the fluid and sodium losses as you can between the time you finish and the next day starting. Yep. What about the energy and nutritional component to that, like, is it the protein focus or would you be going and saying no, just jumping straight into the carbs and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I have some protein, mm-hmm. but my focus would be carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the single most important fuel in the body. It, it, and it's basic human physiology. It's not, our physiology hasn't changed. We, we run exclusively on glucose. Is the single most important fuel in the body. Um, for the brain especially, but for, the, for active muscles. Um, and if you're an athlete, what? and this is the thing, how quickly does that carbohydrate that you use when it's converted to glucose, how quickly does that then, be, how quickly is it stored as glycogen in the muscle? Everyone's going to be different. There's no, it's not 20 minutes, it's not 40 minutes, it's not an hour, it's not two hours. It's going to be different for everyone. And then how well does your body actually access that glycogen storage? You know, how efficient is it at burning that fuel? Um, once again, everyone's different. There's no, there's no guidelines to all that sort of stuff. It's just, uh, but that, that would be the main focus for um, endurance yeah. athletes to ensure that they're starting that next day having restored the glycogen that they've burned in that, in that previous And day. interestingly enough about storing glycogen is it's a process that requires fluids to do so. Yes. Yeah, so it almost increases your necessity for those fluid replacements as well. Yeah, and, and that's the thing from a rehydration perspective is that you want to start that next day having minimised blood volume loss mm-hmm. because without, um, <laughs> without blood circulating or, a, or a, a good percentage of blood in our body to circulate – and feed the muscles and and basically function properly. Um, if we've got less blood volume, then it's not. We're simply not going to function as well as we'd like. Mm. On my last podcast, I had a guest called Chris Price, really interesting uh, guy who's actually a very elite stair climber in Australia. Um, he's also um, become quite proficient in the allied health services. And he was talking about something about bonded hydration. And by that he meant literally it was like if you're lying on your bed thinking that you need to drink these fluids with your feet up the wall, the fluid doesn't easily absorb because the muscles need movement to kind of act like a sponge to pull 
pull it into the areas that it's required. So he suggests, you know, when you are drinking to be just gently walking or stretching or just moving, it could be as much as cooking your dinner for the night uh, to help with the hydration processes. And I just kind of wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I haven't even heard of that before, to be honest. Yeah, it was um, neither had I. Yeah. It was really quite interesting. What, what I do know is that water will not um, hydrate you properly without sodium present. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the – that I do know. Um, the principle of the saline drip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It won't move into the cell unless there's sodium. So, so. – do you think then the guide for these multi-day athletes to know that they've adequately hydrated is the passing of clear urine, knowing that they've drunk sodium? Like, what is their yeah. gauge? Well, that that urine um, urine color, it's once again a general guide. You can have clear clear urine, but still be dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Um, in when I say dehydrated, is that if you just drink plain water you'll have clear urine. But if you haven't addressed your sodium losses, um, then and the sodium concentration of your blood has dropped, it won't matter what colour your urine is, you're still going to have issues. Mm-hmm. Um, urine's a waste. It needs to have some colour. Obviously, it doesn't need to be dark, but there needs to be some colour there because it's actually a waste product. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's clear would be a bit more of a concern to me. Mm-hmm. Like, if yeah, so... Um, yeah, these, these urine charts that say your urine needs to be clear, well, I don't think that's correct. Yeah, and I've certainly experienced that for myself that um, if I've just drunk water and I haven't had the electrolyte available, particularly after some of these big long events, yeah, you can go to the bathroom within an hour and pass clear urine, mm. um, but you're not actually hydrated. And the other example of that is in doping control. And, you know, you're there and you're forced to need to go to the bathroom and use drinking water and the risk is that urine gets too dilute and they can't actually test anything in it because mm. you're just basically passing clear water, clear water yeah. um, and still have a splitting headache and feel dehydrated two hours later. Yeah, even yeah. though you've drunk that fluid. Yeah. That's right. Huh, really interesting. Um, I just want to backtrack before we just go a little bit further into some of the electrolyte stuff, but you talked a lot about we talked a lot about the tennis and other athletes that you've worked with that are performing at this really high level. But aside from nutrition and when you are in the presence of amazing athletes, how do you – do you get that feeling that I like I've sometimes experienced it where you just meet someone you're like, that person's destined to be a champion? And what is it that gives you that impression? Yeah. Um, there's one guy – he just rode the nationals, the cycling nationals in Ballarat. He's so road cycling. Road, yeah, but yeah. he's not a he's not a road cyclist. Huh. He, he does it for training for his sport, which is um, superbike riding. Yeah, right. And he's just good on any type of bike that he that he rides, whether it's mountain bike or road bike or a motorbike. Motorized. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but he just recently, if anyone watched the nationals cycling, would have seen this guy, Troy, Troy Herfoss. And we started working together because he had some big cramping issues and uh, not the sort of thing that you want to experience doing 300 kilometers an hour on a motorbike. Um, it's not, not something you want to think about. So we started working together and um, it wasn't his sodium concentration. His sodium concentration wasn't too high. It was quite manageable, but he had a very high sweat rate. 
So the accumulative loss of sodium was high. Mm. Um, so we addressed that and we, we fixed up his cramping issues. But he started cycling a few years ago just to, you know, to for fitness and found that, you know, he had a talent there. And uh, he's just got a physiological makeup that, um, you know, he was mixing it with the world's best cyclist just wow. a couple of weeks ago at um, Bunning for wow. the Nationals. And if he hadn't dropped his chain at the top of the hill on the on the last climb, he would have been right there with with some of the pro you know some of the best pro tour riders in the world, um, which is staggering for someone who you know doesn't compete in that sport um, as a job. So yeah, there's yeah I've come across a lot of athletes over the years that um, yeah would never have heard of that are doing some phenomenal things that don't feel a need to get on the social media and tell everyone about it. it it's, um, yeah, they're, they're the ones that I kind of um, admire, mm. that they go and do these things totally for um, for their own reasons and but don't feel the need that everyone needs to, to know about it. And we're talking some pretty staggering um, challenges, yeah. multi-day challenges. Yeah. I heard someone say the other day that the people who should have an ego don't need to have an ego, mm. as in like that egotistical behaviour tends to be in the tier below that super elite who just know they just need to get on and do it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. I was interested in that. I want to then go on and um, answer some of the questions that came in last night on social media for our listeners. And one of them was around potassium because yeah. we talked a lot about the electrolyte sodium and how much is lost in sweat. But mm. can you talk about potassium and actually also how that's led you to changing the way that you de- – or to creating the way that you develop your products? Yeah. Well, that was um, – I stumbled across that when we were formulating the tablet, the electrolyte tablet, and um, it, it wasn't – it wasn't something I was looking for, but we were doing one-hour uh, ergo sessions on a bike at quite high intensity, and then we're seeing about um, with ten minutes ago that the power start to drop off, and because what we were doing um, with the athletes that had a higher sodium concentration in their sweat, we wanted to um, put more tablets, increase the amount of sodium, to see whether that would impact on on their performance. And uh, we still weren't replacing all that they were losing, but we were getting much closer to what their, their losses were. And um, from a, a palatability perspective, uh, potassium can give a, a sort of metallic taste. And I wanted to keep the, the sweetness of the, uh, you know, I didn't want to use too much um, sweetener in, in the product because I wanted to keep it quite mild. And so what we did was we reduced the potassium from a palatability perspective, and that was the only reason at the time, but it allowed us to increase the sodium. Yeah. And uh, so what we did notice was as we increased, we were giving the same dose, but we weren't seeing that drop off that last 10 minutes. Oh, the, the, yeah, that power output was, was consistent for that whole hour. And uh, we think, well, it's only one change, and that was potassium, and then we started... Well, I started researching on potassium and being intracellular, um, you don't lose a huge amount and we all actually lose similar amounts. It's not too different between the amount we lose in sweat. Okay. But importantly, too much potassium in the bloodstream can cause hyperkalemia. And the precursor to that is muscle fatigue 
and nausea. So as we reduced the potassium in the tablet, we weren't seeing these uh, drop-off in power from mm -hmm. muscle fatigue and that sort of thing. So that's something we just stumbled over by chance, um, but really exciting. And it's something that um, athletes need to be considerate of. They need to look at um, the product that they're using and have a look at how much potassium is in there. Um, and then once learning that and understanding that, you know, too much of something can actually give, have the same impact as not having enough. Uh, when the marketing companies came out with coconut water, huge amounts of potassium mm. in that coconut water and athletes started, right, this is what I need, this is what all the marketing says. And they were drinking up to three or four litres of this um, coconut water. And I was getting emails from these athletes going, look, you know, this is my power output from, you know, the last three months. I haven't done anything different. I don't know what's going on. I've lost all my power and, you know, I feel fatigued. And then um, we work out. I so, said, okay, well, what have you done differently? And, you know, it's just through asking questions. I don't know, what, what are you doing? Oh, well, you know, I'm drinking this coconut water. I'm finishing my sessions. And I said, well, how much are you drinking? I, you know, I might have, you know, two or three, maybe four litres during the whole day. Oh. And I'm thinking, well... That could be a pretty good reason why, because there's a staggering amount of potassium just in, you know, a, a bottle of that, let alone four. And uh, let's, I said, okay, well, let's address that. Let's cut that out. And then you see within a week, they come back to you and their power comes back. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's kind of a, um, a generalization, but it's it's a good thing to look at. It's always um, having an understanding of if I consume that, how is that going to impact me? You know, and you can have too much sodium as well. It's not just potassium. No, um, about, yeah, athletes that uh, have very low sodium concentrations in their sweat, and not knowing that, the um, they're being told, well, oh, you know, you need more of this, you need more of that, but they're having too much, but having the same symptoms as someone who's not getting enough. Uh, so yeah, there was one girl I was working with who did Ironman Malaysia, ended up in hospital, um, really bad. And uh, then you know, she came to me, She, someone said, look, go and see Daryl, see if she can sort it out. She had a really low sodium concentration in her sweat. We addressed that, said, look, you just don't need to have as much as what others are having. You need to back right off. And it was actually a bit of a challenge to back it off. Um, she went back to Malaysia the following year and she got third, she got a, on the podium <laughs> in, sim, in similar wow. conditions. Yeah, um, right. So, you know, from her numbers, she, she should have done really well on the heat, but um, she was taking on too, too much, much. And going the other way. And going the other way. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. And magnesium? Yeah, we, we spoke about that last we night. We spoke about it last yeah. night, but a few of our listeners today won't have heard last night's okay. presentation. So I'm I'm interested because I'm I'm actually interested to know. Like, I mean, it, it'd be really hard for you because every product would be different. But are like, what are the um, the amounts recommended for athletes with these? Like, you say, like, look at your product and and see what's in it, but. I mean, if I looked at potassium concentration or amounts mm. in, a, in a tablet, I wouldn't even know where where is the appropriate place to be. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that yeah, it's it's a hard question because everyone's going to lose different amounts. Yeah. But, uh, magnesium, uh, it, it, you know, it's something that we don't lose much of in sweat. And being intracellular, um, you know, it, it, it's unlikely that if you take potassium or magnesium, which are both intracellular, they're inside the cell, um, where they actually make it into the cell when your you know, heart rate's at 150 or 160 or whatever, you know, what's actually going on with the body? Is, is it just purely focused on making sure that you're running as fast as you can and whatever else is going on it doesn't care about? Um, or do all those things happen at rest? So the reason I keep going back to sodium is that it's extracellular. It's, it's mainly in the bloodstream and we lose so much of it. Um, and it impacts on every single function, whether it's brain or muscle function, and having a, an adequate amount of sodium in the blood will determine how well the brain and muscles are functioning. Mm -hmm. But magnesium we lose. Actually, some athletes that I tested many years ago don't lose any at all. Some lo might lose four milligrams per litre of sweat. That's nothing compared to what you showed last night, which was anywhere between 300 and 3,000 milligrams yeah, of, sodium. of sodium. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the – um, and I used that saline drip analogy last night. If you're admitted to hospital and put on a Hartman solution, it's a one-litre bag of water with 3,000 milligrams of sodium and zero milligrams of magnesium. And if magnesium, magnesium was important to rehydration, it'd be in those saline drips. But because we lose so little, it's not really something you need to, to focus. Mm. You know, if, if you feel you have a magnesium deficiency, well, it's not something you want to address while you're running or mountain biking or cycling or swimming or whatever. It's something you address in your normal diet, but by eating foods that you know, have a higher magnesium content. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of athletes have realised that, um, and it's ruined their race, a particular race that they spent a lot of time training for, and under the, under the understanding that, you know, they need magnesium, um, and they've ended up, you know, having to spend most of their time on the side of the trail or whatever it might be with diarrhoea, because magnesium is a, a, a main in, or common ingredient in laxatives. And they just have had too much. Yeah. And it's just affected their stomach. And it's something that I imagine just slowly builds up over time. And that's what I see with the athletes I work with. Like they don't pick up on it when they're just doing their one or two hour training runs because they're not out there long enough to get that yeah. build up. But as soon as they're out there for eight, nine, 10, 20 hours, yeah. that's when the problems kind of set in with the exactly. magnesium. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the thing too. At that um, training, you'll never mimic race day intensity. And that's why it's always good when when you are training for an you know important race, particularly one over multi hours, is that you need to get an understanding of how these things are going to impact you. You don't want to find out during the race. You want to find out during some key sessions in your training. Okay, what if I do this? How is this going to impact on me? And you know sometimes things happen in a race that it's just no answer for. Um, Last night, a guy came up to me. He had some issues uh, at Ironman Port Macquarie. Okay. And he said, "Oh, mate, I've actually got you know. I was, I was listening to you about you know how important the stomach is, and you know I think I have a really good stomach. I think I can tolerate most things quite well. But five kilometres into the bike ride of Ironman Port Macquarie, I just couldn't keep anything down. My stomach was playing up, and and uh, my question to him was, 
how good a swimmer are you? He said, well, actually, not great. <laughs> and I said, how much, how much salt water did you reckon you swallowed in the swim? And he said, well, ah. now that I think about it, probably quite a lot. Oh, and I wow. said, well, for you to start experiencing stomach cramping or stomach issues that early into the bike, it's a pretty good chance that you've, you've swallowed a fair amount of water um, during the swim. Um, he said, yeah, she, you know what, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I said, so. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, sometimes that's, that's unavoidable, but for triathletes, particularly for Ironman, you, you've got to try not to swallow any of it. It's just the concentration of sodium chloride in that, um, in that water is, is, is massive. massive. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to affect the stomach. Wow. Yeah. So with the deficiencies that we're talking about, we talked about how electrolyte deficiencies can, say, build up over a multi-day event. But what about in lifestyle in general? So maybe people who are listening to this who have never used the electrolytes, um, they've only ever trained on water and, you know, grab aid station stuff during an event. But can you become, like, lifestyle sodium deficient? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on how active you are. Um, just just for normal body function, um, whether you do any exercise or not, the body needs around two to two thousand three hundred milligrams a day. Oh wow! Just for normal body function, so it's a fair amount of sodium just there. Mm. Um, remembering that if you put salt on your food, let's say, and I don't know whether you measure or not, but let's say you put one gram, one thousand milligrams of salt, which is sodium chloride. Chloride is actually 1.6 times that of sodium. So for 1,000 milligrams, uh, you're looking at probably around 450, or so 400 milligrams of sodium to 600 milligrams of So as in if you chloride. take a, a teaspoon, teaspoons a lot, but I'll use it because it's an easy one to yeah. work, a teaspoon of table salt and sprinkle yeah. that over a meal. Yeah only 400 or like a third, for example, of that teaspoon is, is actual, actual salt. Yeah. The rest is a chloride. Yeah. Uh-huh. So okay. this, this is the thing that I, you know, I always um, question because everyone goes, oh, sodium's bad for you, you know. But when you have salt, it's predominantly chloride. So why isn't chloride the, mm-hmm. the, the bad mineral? Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, the fact is, um, you know, as I mentioned last night at the uh, at the talk, sodium does get a bad rap, um, and unfortunately and sadly, sixty five percent of the population in Australia are overweight, do next to no exercise, and eat a lot of processed foods. So they're getting enough sodium, but the people who are listening to this podcast do not fit into that demographic, mm-hmm. not even close. Mm-hmm. Um, most will eat well and they're, and they're considerate of the fact that I'm going to limit the amount of processed foods I eat because I know it's not the best thing for my body. And if you eat well, it's generally low in sodium. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you couple that with someone who you know runs 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week or whatever it might be, whatever sport it might be, mm-hmm. I've got some marathon runners are running 130 to 160 k's a week you know it's huge commitment um 
if you then add up, okay, how much sweat are they losing over that week, the cumulative week, and then add up how much sodium they're losing, it's, it's a staggering amount. But when they start addressing it and they start to learn, okay, well, you know what, all that stuff I've been reading about sodium, that's not directed at me. It's directed at people who are fat, people who eat a lot of processed food, and I'm certainly not that person. Yeah. Which is unfortunately the majority of the population. So um, sodium for someone who's active, it's a super, super important mineral. And if you're not getting enough, does it just lead to like a general overall fatigue? Yeah, you do. You just don't fit, you just don't function properly because it's when you have you know a, a good amount of sodium in the bloodstream mm. and the amount that works best for you, and everyone's gonna have a different sodium concentration in their blood for their body to, to function how it's designed to. You know, we're all our own machine and we need different concentrations of different things to function the way that we're, we're built, basically. Yeah. Um, once you start to, to um, understand that that's that marketing, that article, it's n- I'm not in that demographic. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with me. Yeah. Um, when they start addressing and start putting Himalayan pink salts on their foods, you just you, you get that spark back. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened to me. You know, growing up for my entire life as a vegetarian on whole foods, pretty much no processed foods. I just like I'd eat and I just didn't. I never felt like I got a pick up, like a kick from a meal. I'd often almost not feel hungry, but just feel like I needed more energy after the meal and I think it was literally just that knowing now that sodium is also the co-transporter of the glucose molecule like I was just really having a lot more trouble accessing the energy of the food that I was eating Um, and I just did get that general lethargy like constantly just feeling fatigued like not mentally so much just like this real like overall body fatigue yeah Mm. and um and they actually later doing testing with Sally Chapman, who also came on the podcast in one of our earlier editions. Um, she worked out that it was actually for me, like I must be someone who's just a mineral loser as a general. Like I lose a lot of sodium. I actually lose quite a bit of magnesium in lifestyle and, um, and zinc as well. And I was deficient in all three. And once I addressed all three, it actually found that all my hormone function returned properly as well, which mm-hmm. had always been a bit like hit and miss. So um, I think, you know, it is in, like it's been so interesting learning this journey from you about the importance of minerals, um, particularly the sodium, and just to see like and feel the lights come on as an athlete. It's an incredible feeling. Like once you, I think once you get in, once you experience what it does really feel like to feel yourself, there's absolutely no going back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and, and once again, um, and, and reason why, um, you know, we, we don't do a lot of marketing and that sort of stuff you spoke about before in that what works for one person necessarily isn't going to work for someone else. Mm. So, you know, this is the thing that it can't be just a one message that, okay, you know, sodium's the answer. Well, sodium's going to be the answer to some. Um, yeah. And in some, play, in, in some cases, if you have a low sodium concentration in your sweat, then the fact is you just don't need as much. 
but the awareness of the three key elements, which appears from a listener's perspective to be sodium, fluid, water, mm-hmm. yep. and glucose. And if you yeah. have an understanding of those three elements and what they mean to you as an individual, exactly. then you can start to nail it. Yeah. yeah. They're the three um, components that will have the Im- biggest impact on how you function during an endurance event mm. or any type of event, even mm. if it's even if it's a short, even if it's less than an hour, you don't want to start with any deficiencies. You want to make sure that um, everything's topped up, ready to go, um, and that is it's your calories or in the form of in the form of glucose, um, water to address blood volume loss, and the sodium to ensure that you've got a good amount of sodium in the bloodstream to assist with all those processes that are that, that are happening that at the time. Huh. So can I, I mean, I want to move along and I'm aware of the time and not, not holding you here for too long, but I want to take you to, to ask you a little bit about what your approach is to just lifestyle diet in general, because we have spoken quite a lot about the diet when you're exercising, when you're training. Um, and I also in there am interested to know your thoughts on supplements, because in a couple of, uh, even in, in this podcast, you've mentioned on a couple of occasions, like, if you have a healthy diet and you address these in your diet with a balanced or healthy approach um, to whole foods, then you shouldn't need necessarily to supplement, but just kind of wondering where you sit with all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah so the, the, the supplement thing, uh, firstly, you know, athletes will hear something that, that you know, a certain mineral is important um, and in cases you know some athletes will have a deficiency for whatever reason um, and it might not be anything to do with the sport they're doing or the foods they're eating it might be just be genetic it might be the fact that um, for whatever reason their body's not absorbing a certain mineral um, so whether whether they um, access that through a tablet um, my, I, I've always been of the understanding that your body's going to respond much better to a food, um, mm. but focusing on a food that is higher in that particular mineral. And it might be, for whatever reason, ancestors go back to whatever, you know, it might be you know, potassium, for example, and you just need to eat a couple of bananas a day to, to manage that. Um, I just can't see how a tablet that's so heavily processed and refined can do the same job as what we were designed to consume. We were designed to consume food. Um, I think when you start to really develop a real strong understanding and ability to listen to your body and just, I guess, cut away the marketing craft and mm. just go, what is my body telling me? It's actually fascinating how much it does give you. And an example of this was like forever and a day, I've hated mushrooms, hated spinach and hated tahini. Well, over the last couple of years, I've almost developed an addiction to these three foods. And I'm sure like I've learned since actually finding out I was zinc deficient that uh, tahini, so sesame seed paste, is incredibly high in zinc. And now I'll lather it on like bread, rice cakes, anything, dressings, Mm. um, on slices of apple because I feel like I can't get enough of this. Um, So I... I, I, yeah, I'm excited to hear the fact that you, yeah, you have well, a similar approach. You know, and then you, you know, someone might listen to this podcast and think, oh, I'm going to try tahini, and it might actually 
they might have an, a, an opposite mm. reaction to mm-hmm. it. It might just they might just feel different on it. And so, you know, we're here for you know, not not a long time. Um, but when we talk about processes, um, I think your body's going to respond to foods that are naturally occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, when we talk about carbohydrate, the big marketing companies have been very clever in that they've lumped carbohydrate into one uh, one category, and that includes all your all your um, processed, refined sugars. It, like everything's under carbohydrate now. If if the food regulatory um, administrators had half an idea, they would ensure that um, food manufacturers, um, and it'd have to be law that they put down whether it's refined processed sugar, <laughs> and that's what it needs to be, or a naturally occurring sugar, because then these nutritional information panels would make a lot more sense, because. What, what happens is athletes, especially, who are really considerate about what they put in their body, they'll look at something, they'll look at the nutritional information panel and it'll say 30 grams of carbohydrate, 20, of which are 28 grams of sugar. Now, and they'll go, oh, I'm not going to touch that because it's 28 grams of sugar. But it might be 28 grams of naturally occurring sugar as opposed to refined processed. And this is the thing, with athletes who eat well, and they, you know, they're really considerate of, okay, I'm going to limit the amount of processed foods I eat. And before I eat anything, I look at it and go, how many processes has that gone through? And if, it's, if it looks like that there's a thousand ingredients there and, you know, there's sugar in there, which is one of the most heavily re- refined processed ingredients on the planet, if that's there, I won't touch it. Um, so looking at these foods and eliminating these processes... And eating clean, I like to call it eating clean, but then they go to do a race and they're drinking these sugary sports drinks with a full of these refined protein and they wonder why they're having stomach issues. In that, my first question is, you know, how well do you eat? Well, actually, I'm really conscious about the foods I eat and I make sure that, you know, I, I limit the amount of processed foods I eat. And I say, okay, well, what did you just consume during that race? Oh, well, I had this powder. And I say, okay, what's the main ingredient in that powder? Oh, sugar. So, you know, no wonder you're getting stomach issues if you're eating clean during the week, but at the point when your stomach is at its most sensitive, you're consuming these heavily processed refined sugars, which you don't consume for a reason during the week. Um, So, yeah, eating clean, just... um, But then recognizing that you need to do the same thing during an event as well not not rush out and pour these powdered drinks which every single one of them is full of this whether it's fructose or sucrose it's refined crystalline form sugar Mm -hmm. which is so far removed from its natural form the stomach's just not going to recognize it oh love it this then leads me into the black hole of the ketogenic diet. It came up last night. It was the last question of our audience. And um, I I need to kind of breach it again because if we've been talking a lot about glucose, there will be people listening and people who have read and heard about the ketogenic diet, particularly for mm-hmm. endurance athletes. Yeah. Um, 
Can you open the debate? <laughs> well, I'm in my 50s now. So this happened probably 20 years ago. There was this <laughs> push for fat burning and all that sort of okay. thing. But um, it kind of didn't last long because we didn't have social media back then. And the thing with social media nowadays is something sort of you can sort of catch on and people get to hear about it. And it sounds great. Like um, if you can access fat stores and, you know, and run for longer and cycle for longer and all that sort of stuff, um, it, it sounds fantastic. But for every action, there's a positive and or negative reaction. And fortunately, I've been able to, well, not fortunate enough for these athletes, but fortunately I've been able to work with a lot of type 1 diabetics who want to be athletes. And there's one particular guy um, who I'm working with at the moment called Daniel Milner, who rides for the KTM factory team. He's an enduro motocross rider. And, uh, you know, he'll do four-hour races, um, six-day races. And uh, he's got the pump for insulin. And he's got a little uh, monitor on the front of his handlebars. Oh, wow. Which monitors his um, glucose levels. So um, he'll just press a little button. When, um, when he needs insulin. And uh, so I, I use Daniel as an example because, you know, we, we, and from many years ago working with type 1 diabetics, is that if they could access their fat stores better, <clears throat> then, you know, that would be at a real advantage. And the thing is with type 1 diabetics, if, if you were able to, if, if fat burning was um, a thing, then we wouldn't have too many type 1 diabetics because they'd be able to shift. And if anyone's going to learn, if the body's going to be able to learn to, to burn different fuels, it'd be a type 1 diabetic. You know, they wouldn't be so um, um, relying on, on glucose yeah, I mean, or the lack of or, you know, or, or this insulin pump, the fact that pancreas isn't working properly. But when, when their glucose levels drop, and I've seen it happen, it's, it's not good. No, they are hyperglycemic state. Yeah, yeah, they start to burn. The, the body starts to burn fat as a fuel. But what happens, it's, a, it's not a clean fuel. And when, this, uh, when the ketones enter the bloodstream, it makes the blood acidic. And some type 1 diabetics have died from ketoacidosis, which is um, the blood becoming so acidic that the body just shuts down. So... It's it's hard to know, you know, when you, when someone says, "Oh yeah, I'm fat adapted. I don't need gels, and I don't need." I'm like, well, that's great, but how much energy are you actually accessing from your fat stores, and how fast are you actually running? So there's lots of different um, there's lots of different uh, you know reasons why people think. That it's great and, and, and it sounds fantastic mm. and I love the idea of it. But I've just worked with so many athletes over the last five years that have tried it and it's just with a compromised immune system, they get sick more often. Um, they're just fuzzy all the time. You know, while fats are, are you know, it's a, it's a good for survival mechanism, but glucose is king. Glucose is the single most important fuel in the body. And carbohydrate, which is converted to glucose in the bloodstream, carbohydrate does not make you fat. So people need to start to understand that 
there's naturally occurring sugars and there's refined, processed, crystalline form sugar that we should never have ever, um, should have never Never seen the light of day. Yeah. Yeah. So make that distinction between the two because when I do work with these fat adapted athletes who say they are, and when I question them, okay, well, how do you know? How do you know that you're burning more fat than you are glucose? Um, you know, do you go a whole day without eating any food at all? What, you know, how are you able to maintain um, all these things? But it's it's just not. It just goes against basic human physiology. That's yeah. That, that's the common sense answer. And I guess if you're using the diabetes type one as an example of uh, fat adaptation mm. or lack of potentially, when I had a, my best friend growing up, my entire childhood was a type one diabetic, diagnosed from the age of three. She had a number of hypoglycemic events when we were younger where she became comatose and the only way to help her was to give her refined glucose so Mm. i remember it just being glucose jelly jelly beans glucose tablets even like cordial just dripped into her mouth under her tongue and then like it was almost instant she'd be back kind of alert again and i guess i'm thinking about it now going there's no way we would have put like a dob of butter under a tongue or yeah, or an avocado. It, or it something just wouldn't like have had yeah. that effect. And and everything you read is that the brain is utilizing the glucose. So even the fat burning processes are driven by something. They're driven by a central nervous system. And mm. if that brain doesn't have that glucose, evident by her experiences as, as a younger child, yeah. um, you know you know that you're not going to be cleanly burning these fat fuels anyway. Yeah, and I notice a lot working with these motocross um, superbike riders, that sort of thing, in that the brain, um, you know, they're having to process so much information so fast. Mm. And when they're not getting enough glucose, you can see their their lap times, you can see how many mistakes they're making, they come back, they're fuzzy, all that sort of And as soon as you give them a, a gel... They're snapped back on. They, they're back out doing the times that they're consistently doing. They're not making those mistakes. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. This this fat adaptation, you know, if it works for you, fantastic. And if you feel that that's what you need to do, great. But the the body hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Our physiology is that glucose is the number one fuel for the body. I think that's a good place to pause that one. I just have a couple more questions as we wrap up that came in last night um, overnight from an audience who wanted to ask these questions of you. One was just actually around um, do requirements change when we age? And we had a a couple of um, a a lovely couple on the podcast again about a month ago, uh, Yeti and Jane, who had gone over to Switzerland to compete in some really big ultra events over in Switzerland. And, um, yeah, so just thinking about them and thinking about their requirements, is it different to them, say, to you or I? Or? Not really. It doesn't change with age. It mm-hmm. comes down to the actual numbers that, uh, that you're experiencing when you're raised. So um, the, the most important things, and, and as I mentioned before, so if you're running a particular race, firstly, you have to have a realistic goal of what time you want to compete or, or what you what you want to complete that course in, and 
what now let's say if it's trail running at what speed do i need to run to get to the finish line in the time that i want to want to compete at so you know to put it simply if you want to run 100 k's in 10 hours you've got to average 10 kilometers an hour so in training you would work out so okay i want to run 10 k's an hour um, and if you have a heart rate monitor it can give you a really good understanding of what heart rate zone or average heart rate that you average or sorry what average heart rate is for that 10 kilometers an hour and how many calories you expend each hour so a calorie is just a unit of energy so how many calories do I burn each hour running at 140 heart rate? So that way you get an understanding that, okay, well, it's 500 calories an hour. Over 10 hours, that's 5,000 calories. And then you start to think, holy crap, that is a heck of a lot of calories. And that's two, two and a half days worth of food for some people. So I know that I need to consume food even at rest. So if I'm using 500 calories an hour, I need to take on... Um, a certain amount of calories. Now, whether you're 20 years of age or whether you're 75 years of age, um, it won't matter. You still need to you work out how much you're actually expending first. Mm -hmm. And then understanding that your stomach is the limiter and it governs how much you can consume. And that's what the stomach is, is the organ that um, dictates um, at what point um, there's going to be deficiency. So there's going to be a gap between how much you're expending and how much your stomach can process. And what you need to do in training is to learn, right, I'm, I'm burning 500 calories an hour, as an example. If I can consume 230 calories an hour, I'm bridging the gap to my losses. So what you're really saying is that we're all athletes at, at all yeah, different... Regardless of, regardless whether, of yeah, what time you do. Yeah. Because um, if, if you're competing in a 100k, 100km race or 50 or 22 or whatever it might be, um, you've got to train for that. And it doesn't matter at what level you are. You're still an athlete. It was actually really interesting because I asked um, Jane during that podcast with Yeti and Jane whether she saw herself as an athlete because I very much got the impression Yeti did but I wasn't kind of convinced Jane did and we had to end up having a bit of a chat about it on the podcast and eventually she goes yeah yeah well I guess I am because yeah. I do the training I focus on clean clean eating I you know am doing the recovery like I guess I am an athlete yeah. and it, I think it was a big light spot light bulb moment for her then but also a little bit earlier when I'd actually raised it with her once before and about sports nutrition and she ended up really strongly getting on the bandwagon of using nutrition when she was exercising and, and for her it was life-changing and it, it was the difference between even entering or not entering event the event in Switzerland that she did and then finishing and not finishing the event she did in Switzerland. Like yeah. It was very, very cool to see yeah. her progression as an, as an athlete. Um, Okay, and just final question um, that came in last night overnight from the audience was around um, someone saying that, you know, they do all the practice in training, they use the product, say your products actually, all the time, and then when they get to race day and they find that the nerves kick in, that they start to, to get quite an upset stomach and things change for them and that's something that they can't really prepare for in training. Right. So just wondering if you know or if you've got any tips 
for such an individual that is experiencing these and, and even maybe why that would be the case for them? Yeah, well, nerves are pretty pretty uh, normal. Um, and most of the abnormal not to be nervous before a race, particularly one that you've trained hard for. But really, once once the gun goes and you're started, for most, those nerves go. And I would say if there are, if that particular athlete is... Is is uh, is experiencing stomach issues? It's more likely going to be that um, they don't have a true understanding of their uh, fluid losses. Right at that moment. Right at that moment, mm-hmm. and they may be drinking an amount beyond what they need. Mm-hmm. That's what I would be looking at first. Um, you know, it, at some point. In that race, there's going to be a certain temperature where the amount they're drinking is going to be spot on. But either side of those temperatures, there's going to be a time where you're not losing as much and you just physically don't need to drink mm-hmm. as much. If you're not losing sweat, you don't need to drink. This, there's a lot of athletes think, okay, I need to drink, I need to drink. And if I don't, I'm going to have issues. Well, if it's 35 degrees, yeah, absolutely, you need to drink. And you need to drink as much as your stomach can tolerate. But if it's six degrees, which is a pretty common temperature for a lot of these trial runs and yeah, you know, early in the morning marathons, yeah. sometimes don't need to drink at all. Mm. You still need your calories, but you don't need a mm. copious amount of fluid. So I'd be looking at that first. That's be the first thing I look at. And not letting that sort of nervous tummy just before yeah. the race kind of really bother you, just yeah. sort of riding it out. And, and, and rationalising it that, okay, you know what? Probably 90% of the people that I'm standing around right now are having the same um, feelings that yeah. I am. Um, what I've done, what I've learned to do with when I was racing a lot was to actually just put back in a gel just before the start, mm-hmm. recognizing that I've been running around, you know, whether that's from the car park to the event or doing a warm up, getting a little bit nervous, jumping up and down a bit more on the spot than I would normally do on a morning when I'm eating my normal breakfast yeah. and. Yeah, just respecting that loss that's already started before I hit, yeah, absolutely. hit the start line. It's generally a couple of hours <clears throat> by the time you get to the start line that you've eaten anything. Mm. And uh, in that two hours, you know, on a normal day, you've probably gone and had a snack with it, some nuts or you know, a bit of fruit or something like that. And you forget about those sort of things before a race. And um, that nervous energy can actually use up a lot of energy. So uh, having a gel you know, 10 minutes before a start of those races is great, not just for the your active muscles, but most importantly, the brain. Yeah. Make sure that's, um, you know, getting the fuel that it requires. And I know this might be controversial, but it's sort of on a similar note. Graham actually brought it up last night, having listened to you um, talk again, so Graham being my husband, but he is a coffee drinker and drinks quite a bit of coffee. And he's not alone in that there are a lot of people out there who enjoy joy cups of coffee through the day and what he's learned about himself is that yes it would be better if he didn't drink coffee and could save the caffeinated gel but he's not that elite athlete and that's kind of not his life focus so he actually needs to continue the drip feeding of the coffee or through your caffeinated gels during a very long day out so if we're on a 10 hour kind of adventure together he can't save that caffeine up because otherwise he actually just experiences the caffeine low really early on. Um, and we've had a number of people on our running tours who are the same because, you know, normally at work they might have, you know, 
coffee with breakfast maybe it's like a 10 o'clock coffee and one at lunch and then maybe one mid-afternoon and if they're out there enjoying this um, running tour with us but the last caffeine they had was green tea at breakfast in japan um then they kind of enter this rule like well i'll appoint and so i think you know i bring this up because we are all really really different mm-hmm. and if you were to do that to me and give me caffeinated gels through the entire run I would be as high as a kite my teeth would be chattering I'd be mm. anxious as anything yeah but for Kat, for Graham that's kind of what he needs to kind of I guess perform at that moment yeah well I guess it's what he's gotten used to yeah um, which you know I, I I won't say I'm not a fan of caffeine I'm a fan of caffeine when you absolutely need it um but like I said last night, it actually doesn't give you extra energy. It just alters the perception of how you feel. And so it, it's, a, it's a drug. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a drug that's pushed legally. And when you see living in Docklands, when you see lines of people oh, out the door. Oh, with their paper coffee. Well, not you know, paper, paper yeah. coffee cups. But, yeah. it, you know, they can't start their day without it. And to me, that's a real concern. Um and I've done a lot of work with caffeine, and, and as mentioned again last night, is that people will have different response to it. Some will not have any, it won't alter them in any way. They'll have a, co- a cup of coffee and they don't feel any different. Others will have a mild response and others it will just, they will just flip out. Mm. Um, and even I've had a couple of athletes over the years who will fall asleep within 30 minutes of having caffeine. It just has it's, the opposing effect on it's them. It's actually in travel calm, which is something that they warn you not to have because it'll make you drowsy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't, yeah. There must be other chemicals in there that... Um, yeah. I feel like caffeine is about like also how you have it. So if I have tea, like if I have a black tea, I don't really notice the effect of the caffeine. If I have green tea, I notice it's... And it's meant to be actually weaker than, green, than black tea. I notice it, it really kicks me. But if I have coffee, even like tiny bit of grams my teeth will start chattering yeah right. like so it seems i think there must be some i don't know enough about caffeine to be probably talking about it like this but i, I think there must be a, the way you drink it and yeah. how it's combined with other things yeah there's probably some herbs in those teas that probably give you a different effect as well but yeah it with caffeine um what i've learned that works best particularly for an endurance events is not to have it too early mm-hmm. is not to have it until you're actually feeling that mental fatigue um, until those negative thoughts start to creep in um, and if you've conditioned yourself well enough for a race you should be able to get a fair way into that race before you start thinking geez you know i'm really starting to struggle here and sometimes those negative thoughts are coming because you are starting to suffer low glucose yeah it, could be, yeah, it think, could be that yeah it, it can be and if you look back and and this is the thing you should be doing during an endurance event okay how well am i addressing my hydration you know how hot is it right now you know am i sweating more than i was three hours ago do i need to increase the amount of fluid i'm drinking um asking yourself those questions am i getting enough calories in am i am i minimizing my percentage of loss um, all those sort of things. And, you know, that, that's the great thing about endurance events is that, you know, you've got time to, you know, think about to, the, monitor. Yeah, to monitor what yeah. you're doing, if you're doing the right thing. But it's firstly having that information first to, to understand what you need in the first place yeah. rather than someone saying to you, hey, just put two scoops of powder in this water and that's all you're going to need all day. <laughs> now, 
it's yeah, it's um, it's quite empowering going into a race with a plan, knowing what oh, you need. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. It like I'd go as far as saying it actually is life changing. Um, and if if that's something that you really want and really want out of yourself but to go into those races knowing that you're physically prepared you're yeah. mentally ready your gears ready and you have a plan with your nutrition mm. i think you can put kind of problem solve your way through everything yeah i yeah. think everyone goes into a race wanting to go as fast as they can mm. you know even whether it's to win it or whether it's to finish you still want to you yeah. want to beat the time you did before i think well i'm certainly i'm pretty sure everyone goes into the race wanting to beat the time they did previously Definitely if you're a type A achiever, yeah, you, you're out there to kind of do your best. And um, But the other thing about all of this, and like, yeah, we've talked a lot about performance, but it's also just about enjoying yourself. If you are underfueled, not rehydrating, you're having a negative experience because of it, the negative thoughts are plaguing you the whole time because you just actually haven't had any glucose um, or your brain or your body can't access the glucose you're having because you don't have enough sodium or you've got a grumpy tummy and you're stopping behind the bush every like hour i mean you're not going to enjoy that experience and so i feel like everything that we're talking about yes we're talking about the elite principles of it but i feel like it filters right down through to even the person going out for a day hike Mm. uh you know and how much they're going to enjoy that experience so Daryl, I think that's a wrap. Thanks again. Um, For those of you who missed podcast one with Daryl, I really would recommend going back and listening to that where we present more of the basic principles of the science. Today, I think we were getting a lot more in depth and also hearing about some of the other work that you've been doing. So thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.